watch out about working with founders and startup companies and what that could be like. In that whole interview process I went through, this was a common topic, not just unique to uh, SIOPS, but just in general. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. The marriage of technology and genomics and health data has become the hottest thing since sliced bread lately. But with so many companies looking like well-funded science experiments, there are only a handful of doing things that are truly actionable at the individual patient level. Today's guest, Ken Tarkoff, is CEO of Psyops, a company that's turned his childhood goal of being a doctor into the oncologist's best asset to make a difference for patients. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan. And today's episode is brought to you by GE Ventures. GE Ventures scales ideas and grows companies that advance industries and improve lives. So, David. Yes, whole, Lisa? You, <laughs> you, who are an incredible dork. Um, <laughs> thank are, you, thank you, dear. I know. Uh, are also very deeply steeped in this whole precision medicine field, yeah. which is blowing up, baby. Why oh, now? it's hot. What, why now? I mean, it's been talked about for years, but what are the things that have made it suddenly all their age? Was it the Vice President Biden focus on cancer or something else entirely? I think it's before that. I think the major advance has been, there have been two major advances. One of them, which actually, of all people, uh, Ventner had uh, even testified about before Congress, and I thought he was really astute about this. First, he was talking about, this was several years ago, in fact. First, he talked about the uh, in, you know in, incredibly cheap rate at which uh, you can sequence a genome, how it's pretty much, how it's gone down from you know millions and millions of dollars um, and taking a long time to now it can be done pretty much routinely and, you know, getting close to uh, $1,000. So it, it becomes much more practical. And two, it's the advent of cloud computing, which allows people to process and to collaborate around data uh, far more efficiently. So I think the combination of uh, cheaper sequencing, more data, and the ability to process the data really enables insights that hadn't been previously possible. So you think it's just technology that's enabled this? It's not something else? I think that's a key factor, to tell you the truth. I think better technology has allowed people to think about questions in different ways. Interesting. Well, we'll have to hear from Ken on this. Look forward to it. So we've had numerous guests on Tectonics who went to medical school only to find their way into non-medical roles. But Ken Tarkoff gave up a career in investment banking and a foray into venture capital to find his way to medicine. It is great to have you here, Ken. Thanks for having me. Uh, so despite your early aspirations to be a doctor like your dad, you took the road to the dark side early into investment banking, joining a pretty legendary team at Montgomery Securities. Why did you make that choice? What led you there? Well, when I was in college, I was pre-med, and I had the opportunity to get exposed to a, a senior member of the Montgomery Securities who was an Amherst alum, and he spent a lot of time talking to me about the benefits of learning about the public markets by doing a two-year stint in corporate finance and then just delaying my pre-med focus. Um, and so he convinced me well of doing that, and I pursued it, and then I never looked back. So I'm glad he actually took me away from the career path. I did want to work in healthcare, but uh, I get to do it on the business side. Wow. So that's quite a pivot from sort of, you know, if you think about people doing, you know, pipetting in a lab, hypothetically, Lisa, um, <laughs> to learning about corporate finance. What did your folks have to say about that? Well, I was, I'm the youngest, uh, youngest of three. My Both my brothers before me uh, became lawyers. And so it was... They had given up hope by that time. <laughs> I had, had given up hope that someone else could not be a lawyer. But... Uh, Actually, uh, part of the reason why I was interested in medicine is my dad was involved in a lot of business. He had started a home oxygen medical equipment company, and that was the part that really interested me. And he actually experienced the Stark Laws when they came out to market and caused 
a big influence on his ability as a physician to be involved in the ownership and the driving of those types of companies. And so as I was seeing that, I started to realize that it was actually the business side that was more interesting to me. And once I had exposure to it through banking, I realized there was a whole area that you could do without going to medical school. And that's what I ended up pursuing. And then all the doctors could work for you. Well, I don't know if I looked at it that way. That's certainly not the way I would describe it. I would say that I've never had an experience where a doctor feels that they work for somebody. I think that they feel that they work with with somebody. So particularly the special. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. It's like, it's, you know, it's like cats. You don't own them. You just, you know, supervise. That's correct. Um, In the end, you, so you did end up in healthcare in the end. You went to Vivra, right? So I actually, while I was in investment banking, I realized that wasn't a career for me. It was a great experience for two years, but I had the opportunity to work with a a client uh, on the road, a, a company called Vivra, which is a renal dialysis company. And they were starting a new single specialty management business and had the opportunity to jump there. And that kind of started my career in healthcare business. And back then you were working on case rates and capitated risk and narrow networks and all the stuff that back then was considered crazy and all of a sudden is back, you know, back to the future in vogue again. What's it like to see that stuff all cycling back? And, and do you think it's going to be successful this time? Well, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right, Lisa. It's a lot about uh, not a lot of new ideas, just timing. Like as my wife always says, it's not that she's wrong. It's just that her timing might be off. So I think that <laughs> in, it, I think this is a, it's, it's interesting to see it. Um, as David was alluding, there's a lot more technology today that can make many of those ideas that were big in the 90s more real. I still think some of the natural problems are there, but I do think there's more openness to some of the some of the limitations that were actually created. Narrow networks is being a perfect example. In the 90s, there was not much openness to the concept of narrow networks, and now it seems to be a little bit more accepted, uh, certainly by the consumer. And so those types of trends along with technology are having a big impact on uh, maybe the timing of the concept rather than just the concept itself. You know, you said to me that um, one of the takeaways you had from Viva was uh, even an A management team uh, will fail with a B concept. What do you mean by that? Yeah, no, it's a joke. You know, as they learn in business school, they always say, I'd much rather have an A management team with a B concept uh, rather than a B management team with an A concept. And I always laugh because uh, the Viva Specialty Partners business was not successful, but we had a, a really high class management team that went on. Most of them or almost everybody went on to do pretty amazing things. And so maybe it, to be fair, it was, it was um, a situation of timing, uh, but uh, it was a great experience, a failed experiment, at least in my experience over the four or five years, I learned a ton. I met some great people uh, and that has been become a network for me that's been very valuable. And so I'm very happy that I had a chance to do that. It just the business didn't end up doing what we had hoped it would do. Yeah, well, you know, that happens. And and so you then, I think, went off to consider a stint in venture capital around 2000. That's right. What was that like? Uh, you you went to the Kauffman program, right? Yeah, you know, it was a funny time. Uh, 99, I was in business school in 98 through 2000 at Kellogg. And that was the time in the internet heyday. And we would be sitting in our classrooms together with our laptops, and we'd be watching companies' stocks go through the roof each day with announcements. I remember that, yeah. Uh, my brother actually, my brother was a senior executive at Commerce One, and Commerce One would have an announcement and their stock would move 30 points in a day. It was just a crazy time. 
And so I had thought that uh, venture capital was my passion, and I went through a, a program called the Kaufman Fellowship between my first and second year. And as I was going through the interview process, a lot of the feedback I was getting was that healthcare, there's not a lot of future in healthcare that you need to move into the technology space. Um, and obviously, that was not a, a very good view of how the market was going to be over the next 10 years, but it, it got me thinking uh, that I... I wanted to understand that better because it was hard not to be influenced by what was going on in the valley. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I remember that time very well because I was in the process of starting a fund at that time and in healthcare, and people were kind of laugh at you when you walked through the door and said that, like, "Yeah, we just fired all our healthcare partners." What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing considering where healthcare and healthcare tech is today. Uh, clearly, was not an accurate reflection. But back at the time, it was pretty crazy, and everyone thought being an engineer and Staying in tech was the only way to do it. Yeah. So you, you did that, right? You went off to tech. I went off. I tried it for just under two years. I went to a, a company that was outside of healthcare for the first time. I was there uh, for a short period of time and realized that was not where my passion was. So I quickly changed back and, and came to a company called Relay Health and joined that. And, and that was about 15 years ago. And I'm very happy I came back because uh, my passion really is in the healthcare tech space. What 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 is it about the healthcare space that that drives that for you? What is what is is it the fact that you're you grew up in a medical home, you know, doctor home? Yeah, or mission it, driven. Mich, you know, something specific. What's the drive for that? Yeah, so it's a lot. I mean, there, it's a lot of things. I would say probably the the thing that if I if I pick the one thing is the ability to have an appreciation and an understanding of the complexity of the market. I actually really like markets that have significant complexities that require experience and knowledge to understand all the different drivers, all the key players, the obstacles you run into. And as we all know, in healthcare, things don't necessarily work the logical way. Uh, and you have to understand all the chain of events and all the parties that are involved. And, and I just, I really had a passion for complexity and trying to simplify things and bring them to market and healthcare on top of the fact that, um, you have the opportunity to actually have an impact on something that's meaningful to you personally. It's also nice to be in a space that's so complicated because it means it's hard. And I like complex and difficult markets. Right. So for the people in our audience, not named Lisa Sunin, could you tell us about um, what was the goal of Relay Health? I know Lisa is very familiar with it, but not everyone in the audience might be. Could you say what was the purpose and what was the experience like as you evolved? Sure. Yeah, so when, when Relay Health first was formed, it was actually an early telemedicine business. It wasn't categorized that at the time, but it was patient-physician messaging. Right. And so when I joined the company a couple years into its start, we were very focused on uh, selling our solution to physicians to enable them to connect with their patients online and to move the phone call and the in-person uh, visit, the low-paying in-person visit, to a more efficient online interaction. And so we had started a process of building that technology. Um, we actually, the CEO was able to get a process through the AMA to create a CPT code. We had a number of payers that were willing to reimburse for clinically structured interviews. And we started a business based on the idea of, of moving patients to be able to interact with their providers online. But you kind of gloss over the how hard that was. I mean, when that company started, of course. that idea was crazy revolutionary. And, and this was like early telehealth. Yeah, as well as telehealth slash patient portal right. thing. What? Right, but but you know the idea that you could text or email your doctor, yeah, and that they might respond was outrageous. I mean, yep. nobody wanted to believe that that could possibly happen. That's right. It was before it was 
before high tech and the proliferation of EHRs and the acquirement of tethered uh, portals for the oh, wow. personal record and so forth. So it was it was early on in that space um, before the physicians had that level of technology. Now it's a little bit more commonplace because most physicians are have either deployed or are deploying an electronic health record with a patient portal. So the concept of a patient being online connecting is not such a, a you know a leading edge new concept. And so uh, that's what it was at the time. Uh, Ten years ago, McKesson bought Relay Health and then moved it into a whole bunch of different spaces into network businesses. So it actually became both organically and inorganically a very large uh, division inside of McKesson with clinical revenue cycle and pharmacy connectivity, uh, pervasive network businesses with lots of different uh, capabilities and analytics on top of it and grew to be a big part of McKesson's business. Up so what was that transition like when you're working uh, at, a, at a startup and, and, and all sort of the excitement and uncertainties of that to then um, kind of being swallowed up by um, uh, a behemoth like uh, McKesson? That was an amazing experience for me in my career because I will tell you when the acquisition first happened, I was convinced coming from a 50-person company that Relay Health was at the time, hmm. that I was not someone who could work at a big company like McKesson. And I thought for sure I wouldn't be there longer than a year. Yeah. Uh, 11 years later, I ultimately left and obviously proved that wrong. And, and I think it was a couple of things. Um, one was that the nature of how McKesson managed the Relay Health business uh, encouraged the Relay Health vision to actually go to market separately to McKesson with its own brand. Uh, they allowed a much more innovative culture. I used to say that we had a, a early, you know, an early stage company, not really a startup, but an early stage company inside of a big company. We had a fair amount of freedom. We had freedom of technology decisions. We had freedom of, of innovation that we wanted to do. And as long as we managed towards specific numbers, we were allowed the ability to innovate. And so I think we were able to, for a long period of time, create a little bit of the best of both worlds, have that innovative startup-like culture in a more established mainstream company. And so it was a great experience for about a decade. So what were the biggest challenges in that? Because I know, you know, many young companies that get acquired by large companies or just try to partner with them, uh, much less be acquired, really struggle with that cultural difference, uh, you know, the, the move fast, you know, kind of orientation versus the, you know, we'll take 12 months to develop our budget kind of orientation. How do you, how did you, you know, how did that cultural, I, I realize it gave you some space, but I, I don't know. That's a pretty unusual story, actually. Yeah, it, uh, I would agree. And I, I'm not going to lie. The first couple of years were hard. It, it, I was the first word that came to mind when you asked that question was patience. Because I remember early on when we were having interactions um, as we were trying to be absorbed under this premise of being innovative, I remember having lots of different contentious moments with other senior leaders who wanted us to align with their approach or to be more uh, collaborative in the way they wanted to do things because the business they had was more mature and they had expectations about how we needed to behave and act. And it took a couple of years to establish the credibility across the business to understand that even though we didn't want to do things the same way, didn't mean that we were not supportive and aligned with the goals of McKesson. And so if I kind of break up, and I'm oversimplifying it, but I break up the, the 10 years, the first five years, I had to be patient. I had to believe that there was a way to get there. I had to fight through some of the internal complexities 
Um, I always had confidence because the senior leadership, including the CEO, were very active supporters of us and our ability to try and create that culture. And so it gave me hope that there was a, a way to get there. And it took a couple of years and it wasn't, it would improve every year and get better. And then the last four or five years, um, we had established the credibility and, and it got much easier. I think what happens in your examples is a lot of times as an entrepreneur, people who are entrepreneurs are typically very impatient people, myself included. And if you don't have the patience to give it some time to develop that relationship and credibility, you can just give up quickly and not actually see if it's possible. Well, yeah, you think about five years, waiting five years for it to be right. Yeah. Five years could be the whole lifetime of a startup uh, company, you know, start to end. Exactly right. So that's a really long time to be patient. It's a really interesting um, difference in mindshare. And so now you've come to be CEO at SIAPS. Now, I think you were GM or the head of that business, Relay Health, when you left McKesson, right? Yes. So I, man- I managed the clinical part of the business. Yes. And now you're CEO of a, a back to a young company that has, you know, yep. a couple tens of employees, not, not you know, what you yeah, left. 100, or, you 110 know. people. Yep. And um, and just for full disclosure, uh, GE Ventures, where I work as, a, as an investor in SIAPS. But, you know, being a CEO of a small company must be a vast difference from what you've experienced, you know, over the last, you know, numerous years at McKesson. Yeah, you know, well, there's clearly similarities and differences. Um, I joke uh, because the other day one of my friends was asking me what the biggest difference is. I said it's kind of nice to not have somebody who's constantly asking what you're doing. (laughs) Uh, So having that little freedom, I have to admit, is nice. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess Lisa's not doing her job. Yeah, really. Uh, your venture people aren't asking uh, that. Now I'm worried. (laughs) Yeah, no, certainly a board's a lot different than the operating reviews. Um, but, um, of a big company, but, uh, no, you know, it's, um, it's been a great change. It's, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to establish and maintain your own culture. I mean, it's obviously, a lot more work. It's a lot more, you don't have a lot of the infrastructure that you can count on, even in a big company where there are, there can be bureaucratic processes and so forth. There are a a number of assets and resources that you can leverage if you do it right, that you can put in place. Whereas in a startup, basically everything is from scratch, as you know. And so you have to quickly adjust and and again, manage your expectation about how long it takes in place to do things as trivial as a a talent review process and put that infrastructure in place and get everything documented appropriately. When you're starting from scratch, that can take time. What did it, it's interesting because I would have thought that what would, that actually in a startup, you would actually be able to do things with a lot more agility. And I guess maybe you can, but you also have to put processes in place. What attracted you to PSYOPs versus, I imagine in, with your experience and expertise, there must've been an, almost an, you know, an infinite number of opportunities that you had before you, including staying at what, what, you know, at, at, a, at, a, at an excellent organization. What specifically about the PSYOPs mission attracted you? Well, it's nice of you to say that I have infinite opportunities. I'm not quite sure that's the way it played out, but I appreciate the support. <laughs> it's just um, between us, yeah. What I would say, though, is, uh, you know, what attracted me to SAPS were a couple things. Number one is, uh, I, even though I've been working in healthcare for most of my career, as we just discussed, Um, I was really excited about being a part of a company that had an incredible mission. My uh, father is a stage four colon cancer survivor, 14 years in, and actually seeing him go through that experience where he navigated through that process and and beat the odds um, was a pretty incredible experience. 
he's had a big influence on my life over the, you know, per, my whole life and particularly the way I looked at my career as we were discussing. And so, so actually seeing that the opportunity to be involved in a, in a business that can help others have an impact on cancer care outcomes is, is a pretty incredible experience. Uh, the other thing I would say that really excited me about the company is we are lucky enough or fortunate enough to have some incredible customers that we're doing business with. I was just yesterday at an organization in Detroit, Henry Ford, and they have a a big cancer care focus and a precision medicine business. They're actually uh, going to be putting out a new facility, building a new facility in the next couple of years. And um, as a small company, it is a tremendous privilege to have customers like Henry Ford and the others that we work with to be able to be able to do business with them and to help them and to partner with them to be able to make precision medicine a reality. And, and I don't underestimate what it takes to do that in a big company, a medium-sized company or a small company. Every customer takes a lot of effort. And SIOPS has, uh, has the opportunity to have 12 big customers that really are an important part of something I wanted to get involved in. So you're coming to SIOPS at a time where I mean, you're not the founder. You're coming in as the, as the CEO replacing the founder effectively. But the founder in this case, Jonathan Hirsch, uh, is staying and is, is, you know, you guys are, you know, for all, intent, for all I can see, appear to be a very functional team together. That's an unusual circumstance uh, where the founder stays and the new CEO comes and everybody gets along well and, you know, figures out their respective roles. How are you finding that? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Lisa. And I was just, I was laughing as David was asking me that question about, uh, you know, all the different opportunities. A lot of people I talked to as I was looking at opportunities and starting to think about it, gave me that warning, which is watch out about working with founders and startup companies and what that could be like. And, and in that whole interview process I went through, this was a common topic, not just unique to uh, SIOPS, but just in general. And what I would say is, is that I think what I liked about it is, uh, in particular, there were three founders of SIOPS, John being the main one. Uh, John uh, has an incredibly smart guy, brings some great vision and concepts, uh, idea and concepts to the business. He also understands he's not an operator. He's not a manager and a, and a leader of the business. And having somebody who has that understanding is critically, uh, critically important to the ability to be successful. And so that was one thing that I was pleased to see. And, you know, six months in, I continue to see uh, his behavior and reaction being consistent with that, recognizing uh, that he needs help and understanding how to run and manage a business. So that's one. The second thing is, and and of course, I'm not blowing smoke up, you know what, as I'm talking to you on the phone, Lisa, but the nice thing is, is that the investors and the board have a really good appreciation for what it takes both from the concept and to manage the business. And that was something that was very important too, is you got to make sure that you have a board that can ma- can help manage through the dynamic of having a new CEO and a founder. I can't have the board fighting over ideas between the founder and the CEO, because if that happens, it's a non-starter. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's an interesting uh, success story. I think a really a great one, because it's, again, not, especially for its lack of being common. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're actually uh, what you're actually doing? I mean, the idea, you know, Elise and I, uh, I often talk about, you know, sort of the dilemma with precision medicine, precision oncology is the, pro, you know, the on the one hand, it holds tremendous promise to improve clinical care, um, to accelerate the development of new drugs, but implementing it. Um, you know, much less at scale, you know, in and in the actual you know context of clinical workflow, has really proved to be you know, at you know for the industry at large uh, a challenge. And the adoption of 
quote, precision oncology, you know, is is not been instantaneous. I'd be curious about your views of, of where the implementation is and how you're distinctly making um, a, a, an impact here. Yeah, you know, I mean, you basically answered my question, David, which is great, which is what we're doing is our focus. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because I would say is what our focus is, is, is scaling precision medicine. Um, we are focused on the clinical workflow for the providers, our health system customers, are focused on scaling it. They want to enable precision medicine out to all their employed physicians and many of their affiliated physicians. And they want a technology platform that can help them make that a reality. And so that is squarely what we're focused on, is helping them make it a reality. Um, We're also focused on building out the ecosystem of partnerships that that need to be a part of making this market grow. Um, what I would I would completely agree with the challenges of precision medicine. I think every day the pressure on an oncologist today is growing to be able to understand how to practice with this level of uh, this type of medicine. It's a big change from maybe the way they did things 10, 20 years ago. And so technology really can play a role in getting them access to information and bringing other key players in the ecosystem together. And that's why I'm excited to be at PSYOPs because I think this is a perfect place of where technology and motivated market can come together effectively. That motivation has to be really um, unequal because I know, you know, in many ways, physicians uh, in this and every other field are, you know, they're trained a certain way. That's what they do. And, and getting them to step back and do something different right. is really tough. I mean, no matter what the field. That's right. Uh, I got to believe the cultural barriers to adoption of stuff like this are pretty significant, probably a lot more than the technical barriers. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think, I mean, I think it varies depending on the organization, but that's absolutely true. Um, as you know, as you know, in my career, uh, that's not a new concept, right? Trying to get patients, getting physicians to adopt patient-physician messaging and then dealing with interoperability around EHR and moving clinical data and analytics and population health. But Fair enough. Now in precision medicine, I feel like that's the norm. It's change, changing the behavior of healthcare delivery. What do you think is the key stuck point in making this a reality that PSYOPs is aiming to address? Well, I mean, I don't think there's one. I mean, I think, I, I you know... I, Clearly, if, if, if you started at the market level, if you just said precision medicine in general, I think the, the immaturity of the reimbursement landscape is clearly holding back the speed of which it's getting adopted. It's requiring organizations to actually step out in front of it and say, we're going to actually make this happen before this is well-defined. So I, I would say that at a market level, um, that's it. I would say probably the biggest issue for the physician is access to real-world information at the point of care. This is a space that is going so quickly. There's so much information. It can be completely overwhelming for the oncologist that's practicing in the community. And that's why I believe technology is such an important player here, is what technology is good at is taking lots of information and presenting it in a simple way right at that point of care. That's something that you has been done before and can be done for the providers. But in order to make it mainstream, that provider and ultimately the patient have to have confidence that they have all the information they need to make the best decision for people that are very sick and that need that insight in order to save their life, to extend their life. Um, so this is 
This is what's so important about it. Is it a challenge to work with existing EMRs? I mean, one of the things Lisa and I often talk about is, you know, so many of these, at least of the lead, I would imagine, particularly the leading cancer hospitals, most of them are, I mean, whether on Epic or on another EMR that are sort of already managing the data. And I imagine that to be successful in that environment, you have to be able to work within that system. What's your strategy there? Yeah, so yeah, so all of our customers are either Epic or Cerner, and we have one Allscripts uh, customer uh, in the mix. And so, yes, we do integrate uh, in the workflow for those EHRs. That's a, a requirement. Most of the EHRs today have uh, a variety of different, whether it's fire-based interoperability or other types of um, visual interoperability as well as data interoperability to support it. So, yes, that's sort of the cost of doing business, which is you need to work with uh, the health systems EHR to integrate. Do they welcome you or embrace you or sort of you mean tolerate the EMR you? Company? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. think it. Ver- I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a complicated question because I think that uh, <laughs> I think that's the same as no. <laughs> I think you already know, right? You already know the answer. Well, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine different answers because you're helping to make their uh, EMR system better, and you're not supplanting it if it works. So I can see how it would be a, a bonus. But you know, that's not generally. You know, people have often struggled to engage with EMR systems. Yeah, so it so it varies. It varies depending on the EMR, of course, and that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, there's different level of levels of embracement, I guess I would say, of of uh, being able to work together. But that's really that's really not the issue. I mean, there's enough interoperability available out there to address the the workflow side. I mean, it is you know kind of to the point we were talking about before. Probably the biggest issue is change management, and getting people comfortable with. Uh, the concept and getting comfortable with using data, real-world data at the point of care and understanding it. That's the bigger barrier. I think over the next couple of years, we're going to be very focused on helping our customers be able to manage through that process because I think the other, the other thing I would say is if you're an oncologist today and you're thinking that, uh, well, this precision medicine thing, it's crazy. I just don't have time for it. I've, I'm too busy in my practice. Every day that goes by or maybe every month that goes by, there's a new therapy or new information that's coming out that's requiring you to take notice. And at some point, it's going to be completely overwhelming for the practicing oncologist to be able to to manage all this information. And so they're going to need some way through technology to be able to provide this information at that point of care for their patient. And so, as I say, this is a market that uh, has significant tailwinds behind it for and what's going to happen over the next couple of years. So as we reach the end of our time here, Ken, I have my question for you is, do you still wish you were a doctor or did you get close enough to, to get the feeling you'd hoped for? Yeah, no, I, uh, no, I'm very happy with the career route uh, that I took. Um, I, uh, I, uh, with the part of it that was most exciting to me was working in, in healthcare technology, get the opportunity to work with lots of physicians. And so I have, uh, plenty of exposure to the clinical side of the care, but uh, no, I love what I do, and and I actually love having the opportunity to have an impact on on cancer care. I mean, it's it, it's pretty hard not to get excited about it, and it's a lot of fun to be in casual dinner conversations when people ask what you do because everyone has a friend or a family member that was impacted, and and everybody knows there's got to be a better way. Uh, to take care of these people to get better outcomes. And so, yeah, no, I'm very happy. So you get to be the guy at the cocktail party that says, yeah, I cure cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not that guy. I I would never make that claim, that's for sure. I could say I know some people that cure cancer. 
Uh, and so that's uh, the fact that I know them and I get to work with them is, uh, is a privilege. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us today, Ken. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you, and we're excited to see uh, how PSYOPs blossoms under your leadership. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks. I enjoyed it, and thanks for your support, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Have a good day. Today's guest, Ken Targoff, was speaking to us today from the East Bay in Northern California as we sit here in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley. Well, I thought that was so interesting, and it really brings up one of the, uh, I guess, a topic that's been really captivating me lately, which is the distinction between the act of innovation. Okay, here we can sequence the genome or we can do something. And in the process of innovation, is a fa- fascinating book by James Besson that I've been reading um, called Learning by Doing, and, it's, and it really highlights the distinction between the moment of innovation and what it takes for a, a new technology, a new approach to be widely implemented and adopted. And, and the remarkable uh, sort of time course that that can, that that can be. And, and the change management, actually, I thought that was a great point that's involved. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this company to me is it's very much um, an action-oriented type of technology, right? It, it, you know, gives data so you can make a decision about what treatment to recommend for a particular patient at a moment in time, and, and as opposed to, you know, a science experiment, you know, or, or something for the point of research, which I realize has incredible value, but... From my standpoint, that, you know, that immediate actionability is what's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that the ambition and, and the ambition of, w- of what the company is trying to do is like it, it, it couldn't be more resonant. And I think it'll be really exciting to watch the, uh, the, the execution and the implementation going forward. Well, you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. In addition, please make sure that you uh, review us on uh, iTunes, leave a comment. It helps other people find the show. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. GE Ventures scales ideas and grows companies that advances industries and improves lives. See you later, Gator. Ciao.